I remember interviewing Anna Holmes, who had started up Jezebel, and she talked about how with, like, not much time, Jezebel surpassed Gawker. It's like parent in monthly traffic. And so these feminist blogs were really making the case for how much of an audience they had. This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. Y'all, as an elder millennial whose 20s were shaped by the feminist blogosphere, you know, we're talking late aughts, early 2010s, last November's news that Jezebel was going out of business hit me like a ton of old tampons. In a press statement, the CEO of Jezebel's parent company, a guy named Jim, explained that, quote, Our business model and the audiences we serve across our network did not align with Jezebel's, end quote. Of all the feminist publications that have shuttered in recent years, Rookie Mag, The Toast, The Hairpin, The Lily, The Establishment, Broadly, Lenny Letter, Feministing, Bitch Media, the Jezebel announcement— really sounded like a final nail in some kind of feminist media-shaped coffin. Or maybe I was being too myopic. These spaces and the voices and ideas they circulated were personally meaningful to me. And in a lot of ways, they are the reason I'm a feminist podcaster and writer today. And listen, Jim, I'm sorry I apparently built my career on an unsellable business model. Yeah, okay. You know what, ladies, I yeah, I was definitely making it about me. And it turns out that Jim was at least partially full of shit cuz lo and behold, a few weeks later, Paste Magazine swooped in, bought Jezebel, and as of this recording, the lights are still on. Nevertheless, I've got questions. Specifically, why has all of this been happening? And what does it mean for feminist publications? the writers and creators staffing them, and younger feminists today who are seeking out their own kinds of Jezebels to help make sense of the world and themselves. I reached out to the New York Times' Emma Goldberg, who'd been reporting on exactly this thing. In a lot of ways, the jury is still out on what new Jezebel is going to look like because I think a lot of people right now feel both jadedness and fear around how many sites have been shuttered and then in some cases brought back to life. But who's the ownership now? What direction are they going to take it into? There's just so many open questions. And the biggest open question is just sort of what economic model is going to allow media to like navigate through these turbulent times, whether it's print media or digital media, what's going to allow it to be financially sustained. And if it isn't, what's going to carry on the mantle of that like sharp and funny and sarcastic voice of feminist thinking that Jezebel served as a home for and and so many other sites, including Feministing and The Hairpin and Rookie and others did too. That broader trend Emma describes is a downer. Yeah, in case you haven't heard, institutional media, digital media, it is very much in freefall right now. What I wasn't expecting, though, in the case of feminist media is just how much we've been here before. 
And by here, I mean even beloved, influential feminist publications either going out of business entirely or financially hanging on for dear life. Whether we're talking about digital or print, what's happening now or 50 years ago, the whole business model of for-profit, i.e. ad-supported feminist media, has just never made sense financially. Well, I mean, the watchword of the feminist periodical is always shoestring. Everything is done on a shoestring. While Emma Goldberg's been out here reporting on the feminist blogosphere, RIP, Mel Waters has been investigating its analog pre-zines predecessors. Hi, I'm Mel Waters. I'm a senior lecturer in modern and contemporary literature at Northumbria University in the UK. I'm currently involved in a project called Liberating Histories, where myself and my colleagues Victoria Bazin and Eleanor Careless are telling the stories of the women's liberation movement through its very vibrant feminist magazines. One of the most significant magazines to come out of that era was Ms. It launched in 1972 and was sort of the Jezebel of its day in the sense of bringing feminist politics and culture to mainstream media. That also meant competing alongside big women's media brands for advertisers and constantly having to prove its worth to CEO gyms. Mel dug into the overarching financial question mark of Ms. Magazine in her 2021 study, gorgeously titled Risky Misness, the business of women's liberation periodicals of the 1970s. From Ms. back then to the resurrected Jezebel today, the risky business of feminist publications hasn't made sense to mainstream advertisers, Definitely hasn't made sense to CEO gyms. And making matters even more complicated, y'all, it hasn't made sense to feminists either. This episode, we are getting into all of that, connecting the past and present, and exploring why feminist media continually runs into the same old business problems, but at the same time is, in a lot of ways, actually a success story. Why did you want to study Ms. Magazine specifically, and what kinds of questions did you set out to answer? Okay, so Ms. Magazine has real appeal for me because it's a mainstream enterprise. It's looking to bring the women's liberation movement to a mass audience. So I was interested to know particularly how Ms. Magazine had married up its political principles with its economic viability. Because again and again, we see how these magazines are struggling to maintain themselves. A lot of magazines are made on a shoestring budget. And financial precarity is this spectre that is hanging over these publications all of the time. One of the things I do like about the magazines is that they communicate this problem constantly to their readers. They're always telling their readers that they're in financial trouble and that that they require support, which is obviously not a great business move, usually. (laughs) That is not what mainstream businesses do. Um, They lock down that information. They're, They're sort of run on a policy of opacity, whereas the feminist project requires that the thrust is always towards openness and transparency. 
And I think it's interesting to kind of make a magazine or make any kind of cultural product where you're, you're reflecting on the potential non-viability <laughs> of that product. <laughs> well, and was Ms. the first of its kind to attempt that in terms of bringing this feminism to a mainstream audience like that? Yeah, so initially, the women who collaborated together to, to bring Ms. to the public, Gloria Steinem, uh, she was a, a columnist for New York Magazine at the time, Patricia Carbine, who was an editor at McCall's, and Elizabeth Forsling-Harris, who had been working in the publishing industry. These women had originally spoken about launching a newsletter that would be a kind of information-sharing publication, but then they eventually alighted on the idea of a, a glossy magazine that would sit on the newsstands next to other women's glossies and would advertise feminism to a mainstream readership. So it was absolutely the first of its kind. If we think that, you know, 1968 is usually the year that's mooted as the, the start of the women's liberation movement, they managed to launch Ms. the preview issue by December of 1971, So that gives you a sense of kind of how quickly they were able to to mobilize. And how was just the magazine business doing at that time? Like what just general business environment were they getting into? Yeah, well, Miss was in a slightly different position to a lot of feminist concerns in that it very quickly received a £1 million endorsement from Warner Communications, so a major media company. They'd got their project off the ground initially because a man called Clay Falker at New York Magazine had offered Gloria Steinem the opportunity to print a preview issue of MERS that would be like an insert to the year-end issue of, of New York Magazine. So they'd been able to test out whether or not there was going to be a market for a, a mainstream women's liberation periodical. And that issue of New York Magazine, with the first preview MERS um, insert, sold out at a faster rate than any other issue of New York Magazine ever. So this is what convinced the investors that there was money to be made here. This might be a little too far in the weeds, but I was curious if you had any sense of whether that funding was controversial at all, like within kind of the the feminist community at the time of, oh, well, million dollars. Okay. Well, well Kristen, what do you think? Do you think the feminists <laughs> are going to like this? It's, um, it, was, it was, as you'd imagine, hugely divisive. Lots of people um, commented that this was just a, a, a vanity project for Gloria Steinem and what somebody called her fancy schmancy colleagues. But at the same time, this is a pivotal moment. You know, the media landscape is changing. Is a feminist magazine going to present us with the possibility, perhaps, of a feminist revolution? How are we going to communicate these revolutionary ideas if we aren't the vanguard of media in the 1970s? So there's scepticism. There's also anxiety about the fact that MERS is a business some commentators from Harvard Business School 
invested a lot in the idea of Ms. as a feminist enterprise, stating, you know, that if Ms. is successful, it will prove that women can um, manage and operate businesses successfully and that this will be a win for, for women overall. So there's a lot at stake here. And I guess the stakes will be a lot lower if there weren't so much investment at the outset. At the same time, the average investment for a, a new magazine would have been around three million. Mm. So if we think about it in those terms, it's not a huge amount of money. Yeah, still they're, so they're still on a shoestring, just at a different in a different context. Yeah, well, you know, you can't trust all of these women with too much money, can you? Oh, they might just go uh, buy shoes instead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when Ms. was launching, it sounds like there was so much attention already on it. What kind of pressure was on it to really succeed? And where was that pressure coming from? You know, it was a needed publication. And that's demonstrated by the feedback that the creators of Ms. received from the off. So the, the preview issue of Ms. elicits 20,000 letters in response. 20,000 people wrote it. They took out their pens, they took out their paper, they got their envelopes, their stamps, and they wrote in to that magazine. That's not the same as writing an email now or, or tweeting out a, a little thought here or there. So they made the effort to write in because the magazine, that preview issue would move them in some way, had spoken to them. So even when the, the letters drop off a little bit, Miss still receives 200 letters on average a day from readers, which is way more than any other mainstream magazine. So it's got enormous traction. It's a magazine that's able to move its readers, to make them feel something. 200 letters a day? Yeah. Well, to give you a sense of what those letters were about as well, because, you know, you're asking about business and, and how controversial the enterprise was. Of the 20,000 letters that Ms. received about the preview issue, 8,000 of them related to the advertising. So from the off, Ms. were very aware that advertising was going to be one of the, the key indicators of its political commitments. So they begin to carve out quite a, an involved advertising policy, quite a strict advertising policy about what they will and won't do to accommodate adverts. So the first thing you'll probably notice if you were to look at Ms. Magazine from the 1970s against a, magazine, a mainstream magazine for women, a similar kind of glossy, you'd notice that Ms. carries far fewer adverts. And, and this was intentional but they struggled to secure advertising from certain kinds of companies. A lot of that high-end advertising that the Ms. Collective thought they'd be able to secure, they weren't able to. Those companies didn't believe that there was a, a feminist consumer out there. And if there was, they didn't really know that they wanted to market anything to her. <laughs> so a lot of the advertising in those early issues, it's for cigarettes and booze. You know, so that is your feminist consumer. She's smoking, she's drinking, maybe she's reading a few edgy publications as well. You know, a bit of erotica here and there. They do sometimes turn down adverts as well. So 
I don't know if you know that Virginia Slim's cigarettes campaign from the 1970s. It's quite a famous one. You've come a long way, baby. Mm-hmm. And usually there'll be like some black and white image of, of dowdy, matronly, unliberated women from the early 1900s set against the sort of bright, skinny, model-like, liberated counterpart from the 1970s. So Miz try and collaborate with Virginia Slims, but they just cannot get away from the idea that this You've Come a Long Way Baby campaign is making it look like feminism has achieved everything that it set out to do and that its business is done. Mm -hmm. So that campaign would have been worth something like $80,000, and they say no to it. So you can imagine like this this magazine that's teetering on the brink of financial ruin a lot of the time is still willing to turn down that money on principle. That, that gives you a sense of, you know, just how important the, the politics were. And ladies, most of us have probably had tiny little crushes on weird stuff. I mean, I'm not talking weird as in I'm attracted to toxic narcissists weird. I'm talking about someone's uneven earlobes or the way that a person separates their peas from carrots. Or maybe it's just a specific kink that you can't get out of your head. So if you're looking for that person on a dating app and are not really sure how to ask, Fleur is the sex-positive dating app that prioritizes women's desires. There are no forbidden fantasies, only mandatory respect and consent. Fleur also features a safe mode for women, which prevents unwanted content, such as explicit images, when a woman is not ready to take things to the next level. There's also a two-step verification and moderation for all users, creating a safe space for community where there's no room for offense, judgment, or scams. So download Fleur app, where desires come to life. It's also surprising that we have this preview issue of Ms. that comes out in New York Magazine, sells through the roof. The first standalone issue of Ms. comes out. It sells out in, what, under a week? Yeah. That sounds like you have the makings of a profitable business, but that math did not math. <laughs> no, and uh, uh, there's real optimism in the early days of MERS. It was always designed to be a profitable concern. Gloria Steinem ha- had a, a business model whereby all of the profits that MERS generated would be fed back into a foundation that would then pay out into different women's projects around the country. There was always the sense that it, this was a business that was going to do well and that would be able to generate revenue that could be used to do good things, to affect positive feminist change in the US. And that just doesn't materialise. Mrs. Subscriptions were often going up, but because of the advertising problem and because of this reduced ratio of advertising to editorial, it's still hard to make the magazine work financially or or kind of work in the way that it originally envisioned. I know it might be foolhardy to play what if, but I have a what if for you. If the editorial side of Ms. stayed the same, 
same articles written, same political passion, but they just opened the floodgates to advertising. Do you think it would have changed anything? So, well, the what you're modeling there, Kristen, is kind of what happens in the 1980s. You know, uh, mm. Ms. turns down the volume on its feminism because they want to capture more advertising. They succeed to an extent, but advertisers are still really skeptical about Ms. It feels like it's feminist commitments are just being hidden, that they're still simmering under the surface, but they're still there. So there are still kind of limitations placed, even when they do take the brakes off that strict editorial policy a little bit. The adverts still don't come flooding in in the way you might imagine, especially given that by the 1980s, some of Mrs. Feminism has kind of been absorbed into other mainstream women's magazines. And in the 1980s, Ms. looks a lot more like a mainstream women's magazine. Did that impact readership? Did that turn off its readers? Yeah, I mean, that's the point at which a lot of women stop reading the magazine because they feel like it's drifted too far away from its feminist beginnings. It stops mentioning women's liberation and feminism as much. It doesn't badge itself in that way. But then come the end of the the 1980s, it's changed hands a few times. The ownership's changed. The editorship has changed. But then there's a Supreme Court decision about abortion in 1989. And at that point, Ms. decides it has to come out of the feminist closet again and declare war on the Supreme Court. On ladies, quick side note, this Supreme Court decision Mel's referring to is Webster v. Reproductive Health Services that upheld states' rights to withhold public funding and resources for abortion health care. I know that this is a podcast people can't see, but what we're looking at is the July-August 1989 issue of MERS. It's a black cover, and in blood-red block capitals on the front, the words, it's war. So this cover manages to turn off most of the advertisers that Ms. had been steadily accruing during the 1980s. So the magazine ends up folding by December of 1989. It's just a few issues after the July issue. They only have 10 advertisers willing to place ads in the magazine. At that point, they decide that they're going to operate as an ad-free publication. Even though Ms. never turned a profit and continually had these business side struggles, how do you assess its success? Yeah. So feminist businesses, not just Ms., are usually adult with debt. They're prone to shrinkage, prone to closure. But do we want to classify these businesses as failures? Probably not. No, very often they are performing an important public service. They are developing content for communities that are underrepresented by the mainstream media, underserved by the mainstream media. Um, They also operate as, as talent incubators. I mean, certainly a lot of the discourses in, in Ms. Magazine about working mothers and that kind of thing. You, you'll find content that approximates the content 
of Ms. Magazine in the 1970s starting to appear in um, things like uh, Good Housekeeping, Family Circle, in a different form. But the, the magazine alters the whole texture of women's media in the 1970s and 1980s. So that's back to the idea of the talent incubator, isn't it? That I must say, I have to credit Kemi Alamoru, who worked on Galdem magazine for using that term. She talked about the talent incubator. And that is so true. You know, Galdem was a, a really a popular hard copy print magazine in the UK. It ran for eight years, was mainly for people of colour. And the women who worked on that magazine have done phenomenally well for themselves because of Galdem. You know, that's enabled by their work in these other smaller magazines. As opposed to now, when, you know, if we do want to think about the feminist magazine as a talent incubator, one of the things that you have to be in that magazine is visible as an individual so that you can get credit for what you're doing so that you're showcasing your skills and people can see But that brings a whole other burden, you know, that you're visible online, that you can be doxxed, that people might feel the need to DM you, God knows what. And so I can only imagine what kinds of pressures that carries for individuals. Mel's right about the added pressures that come with visibility. New York Times reporter Emma Goldberg has heard about it directly from Gen Z feminists trying to figure it all out today. What I found in my reporting is it's very fractured. That water cooler effect that I think a place like Jezebel or Rookie or Feministing might have had on the web doesn't exist to the same degree anymore because it's like the digital media environment is just a lot more fractured. My name is Emma Goldberg. I'm a reporter for the New York Times and I cover the culture of the workplace. People are just going to a lot more brand or individual-driven spaces as opposed to institutional outlets. And I think what that means is a lot of people are finding sort of influencers or individual voices who speak to them, and they're forming community around them. So where did the water cooler go, unladies? How did feminist digital media become so fractured? Well, in a lot of ways, I think that feminist bloggers sort of helped build the blogosphere because there was this moment when blogs were exploding and a lot of people's image of it was the kind of like wonky political DC blogs that were very male. And it was like these men in their early 20s just like banging away opinions about like the politics, the economics of the day. But at the same time, there was this parallel universe being built of feminist writers and thinkers. And I think they were drawing on this long tradition that feminists have of like getting in rooms together and hashing out ideas in public, being willing to change their minds, being a little snarky, like being a little raucous, wrestling with ideas in public. And that's a tradition that is very much in tune with like the zines of the 90s, even in some ways like the feminist consciousness raising circles of the 70s. And and that lent itself really well to like the architecture of the blogosphere. The comment section was like a, a real community, especially like if you think about places like Jezebel. And it wasn't always nice. Like, it wasn't people always being super nice, but it was, it was, like, captivating. And I think 
it gets to the kind of symbiotic relationship between the blogosphere and feminism. Like, and a lot of women got into it not even knowing what a big industry it was going to become. Like, I've interviewed some of the early feminist bloggers who, the way they put it to me is like, they were like in their rooms in their sweatpants, banging away things that almost sometimes felt like their diaries, not thinking it had that much of an audience. And suddenly it had this massive audience. And they were like, okay, we'll lean into that. And legacy and mainstream media institutions paid attention to that. And they started hiring some of those feminist writers, and they even started making some of their own feminist and gender-focused verticals. You know, the New York Times hired a gender editor. The Washington Post started a vertical around that. So in 2019, you reported that feminist media has been hit especially hard by the financial turbulence of the news industry. So why was that the case back then? And where is the financial turbulence coming from five years on? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, part of this is just the kind of ongoing turbulence in digital media. Um, But what I saw in the course of reporting that piece is that feminist media sites are often kind of like the first to take the, the economic punch. Because in some cases, there's still sort of some skepticism from higher-ups about whether there is, like, a real sustainable audience for them. And in other cases, like, they are trying to walk a very tight and complicated line, which is that, you know, they're trying to tap into some of just the fun and entertainment and the joy and the silliness of, like, traditional women's media, doing some sort of fashion-adjacent things, doing beauty coverage, like just talking about the things that their readers want to talk about. But then they are also sometimes trying to take a punch at that and be a little snarky about it. And then there's another level at which like, They're just trying to do what other publications are doing in general, but through a feminist lens. You know, this is something that, like, The Cut, for example, does so well of just writing about politics, writing about economics, writing about immigration, so many social issues, but through a feminist lens. And that's a complicated kind of confluence of tasks to try and take on. And so feminist media also has a tough job cut out for it. And I think sometimes that makes higher-ups in media skeptical about how to accomplish that, about how big the audience is. And then there's the third layer where, you know, so many of the writers and editors who built these sites have been hired up into traditional media, and they've brought their feminist lens into the reporting that they're doing for those media outlets. So there's just like a whole tangle of difficulties that feminist media is facing, along with just the broader ecosystem of economic challenges that media is facing. Do you also get the sense that there is, yes, there is the pressures coming from the business side of things, Do you also get the sense that there is particular pressures coming from the readership as well in terms of their expectations for what feminist media should look like, basically? I definitely think that what feminist media should look like, the expectations around it, has just like evolved at rapid-fire speed because there's such a kind of quick feedback loop between the writers and the editors and the people who sustain these sites and their readers and the commenters and people who respond and engage. In some ways, what's made a lot of feminist media sites so strong is that close relationship between the writers and editors and their readers. And they're really responsive to reader reactions. I think there's been like a sort of unique willingness for people to change their minds out loud 
loud and in public, for them to respond directly to substantive critiques of their work. That's something that I just it struck me about so many of the writers I interviewed for these sites is they all talked about moments where they were called out in public and they were willing to change their minds. They were willing to admit their, their blind spots, their oversights. And so there's a pretty unique relationship where I think readers of these sites have pushed writers and editors to continue evolving the model of what these sites look like. And I think that's why you see such a range, too, of of what feminist media outlets even look like. If you look at some of the, like, earliest big names in feminist blogging, they're now all over institutional media. I mean, think about Gia Tolentino or Dodi Stewart— so in some ways, it's, it's actually a testament to the massive success of the feminist blogosphere that so many of these women ended up leaving the blogs that they helped launch. What was the significance of Jezebel's death and resurrection last year? I think that it's hard to overstate how much of an impact Jezebel had on both media and feminism. Mm -hmm. I think for so many people, it was really the community where they figured out their feminist priors and what it looked like to have like a kind of feminist lens into politics, into social issues, into media, whether it's critiquing the cover of a fashion magazine or writing about whatever the White House spokesperson said yesterday in a press briefing, but just applying that same kind of really smart and really funny and really sharp analytical lens to it. And so many people just, like, came out of the woodwork to talk to me about their experience writing for it, reading it, just how much they would refresh the homepage every day. Mm-hmm. And so we've, we've changed a lot of lives. And then you also see the kind of the impact on media today just in where all of its alumni are. You know, the New York Times writing for New York Magazine, writing for The New Yorker. And then I think there's also a lot of ways in which feminist blogs— pushed other blogs to try out new forms of humor and um, new forms of kind of social criticism. And so I think its legacy can be felt in so many ways. Do you think that there is also any correlation between this sort of fracturing of feminist digital media that's happening and fracturing of the offline feminist community? I think a lot of generations of feminists have had that sort of existential question about what's our platform or like what's going to be the space where we just figure out what we think about anything. And I was rereading Backlash by Susan Faludi recently, and she talks about the backlash of 70s feminism that came in in the form of all of these sort of like trend pieces and 1980s sort of scolding toward feminists or thinking that feminism is just over. It's not what women want. What women want is just like conventional families and lives and like just fitting into gendered expectations. I think like every generation of feminist thinkers and writers and activists and people face their own existential questions and wrestle through it. I do also think that whatever platform feminist thinkers in each generation find to think out loud, that sort of shapes both both the thoughts they have, the way that they develop their feminist identity, right? It's very different to develop your feminist identity in the privacy and intimacy and vulnerability of a a consciousness-raising circle like 50 Mm -hmm. years ago versus the blogosphere, which was a whole other world, which was super public, super instant reactions, a little more like acrimonious, a little bit 
more high stakes because you suddenly have an audience of millions online. And then there's whatever we have today. And like, so each generation of feminists, I think, has a sort of different space in which they're doing their thinking aloud, they're doing their relationship building. And the nature of that space informs their thinking, informs the way they develop their identity, informs like their relationships too. Is this whole domino effect that we've seen of the shuttering of so many feminist sites and spaces, the current precarious state of feminist digital media, is that more a reflection of the precarity of media in general or the precarity of making a feminist business, media business, work? It's both for sure. I mean, I think first and foremost— Digital media is is so precarious. It's like in a moment of so much flux and fear and cutbacks. And I think the digital media shakiness, like that's huge and it's totally reshaping the feminist internet as a result. But I think that has cascading effects on then the way people engage with feminist communities and feminist writing and feminist thinking. And these are kind of like interlocking rings where one feeds into the other. And I think the digital media ecosystem has just changed so much in recent years. And so feminist media has changed as a result of that. And that means that the way that feminist thinkers and writers are coming up right now, they're just having to contend with like a whole new set of challenges and they're finding their way and they're making new spaces. And they're trying to wrestle with the constraints of those new spaces. And they're trying to figure out in the course of doing that, like, where is my community? Who are the people who are helping me figure that out and and supporting me while I do it? Because it's hard work. What are these spaces looking like then for Gen Z feminists? That might look like a podcast. Like I talked to the people who host Finchtopia, which is a really fun podcast that I recommend where they dissect all kinds of like social issues or pop culture, movies, crazy historical phenomena. Like they they really do their research and talk about it in a really fun way. And they've created like a sort of community around their podcast. But there's also Substacks. You know, I interviewed the Substack writer Rain Fisher Kwan, who writes Internet Princess. And she's developed a huge community around her work where she writes a lot about like really tough questions like what is the complex female character of today or how are we building feminist or or female identity on TikTok in these really weird and reductive ways that are almost like memes. And then there's also like a lot of young feminist activists who have just built big followings on social media. And they're also doing a lot of kind of thinking out loud, but it's in the kind of strange and sometimes challenging constraints of building an Instagram following or building a TikTok following? And what does it mean to sort of engage with complicated political issues on those platforms that are built for reductiveness? Like they're built to reduce your character count, be short and quick and grab clicks. And so it's I think the nature of some of these feminist spaces right now is in some ways they can be a lot bigger because they're on these massive platforms. But in other ways, they can also be a little bit more constraining because by their nature, some of them tend to flatten out some of the nuance, like especially places like TikTok and Instagram. And they also reward clicks and clout chasing to a really extreme degree. 
And I think that in some ways changes the conversation too, because you're just, you are kind of always thinking in the back of your head, what's going to get more clicks? Is it a picture? Like, do I have to put a picture of myself on this long, complicated thought that I have about the state of the world today? And what does that do to the nature of the the feminist conversation I'm trying to have? So I think the platforms right now are, are pretty scattered. They're pretty focused on attention and clicks. And in some ways, they can be pretty allergic to nuance. And so people are sort of wrestling with all of those constraints and still trying to, like, build their own versions of feminist community. Do you feel any sense of desire among Gen Z feminists of wanting a more communal space where they aren't necessarily the brand? Definitely. There are two kind of aspects of that that a lot of the people I interviewed spoke to. One is just like it's exhausting to feel like your ideas are sort of embedded in like basically commercializing or making a brand around your sense of self. Mm. And social media like really kind of asks you to just completely entangle who you are and what your thoughts and ideas are. So it's like the photos that you post of yourself with your friends or with your significant other or like at a party help you get the clicks and the attention that you need to build an audience and that allows you to get your ideas out there. But then that's exhausting. (laughs) And what if you just want to put your ideas out there and like retain your sense of self for yourself? So that kind of the ask that the platforms have right now to just put as much of yourself as possible out there and like exposure is so rewarded. I think that could be really exhausting for people. And that's something that I think, you know, people who were part of that kind of early feminist blogosphere experienced to a degree for sure. But now it's just supercharged on places like Instagram and TikTok because it's just kind of like this appendage. It's always there. It's like, why haven't you updated? And it's been a few hours. It's like, if you go days, you almost feel like you have to like apologize for your silence. There's an added expectation of just like always be posting and that's exhausting. And then I think a couple of people also just spoke to like, because of how fragmented it is, it can be way easier to find yourself in an echo chamber and just harder to expose yourself to people who challenge your ideas or who think really differently and who still want to engage with you in a way that feels like friendly and helpful and like you're both pushing each other. I think that's just a lot harder to do when everyone's finding different platforms, whether it's like Patreon or a podcast or Substack or Instagram or TikTok or Twitter or like I guess now X. Everyone's scattering in a million directions as opposed to like, we're all refreshing the same homepage and we're going to engage with each other right there. Do you see upsides of this moment? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that the way that people are building platforms right now is more democratizing than ever. Mm. Pretty much like anyone who has social media accounts and ideas and thoughts they want to share and want to build an audience, they can do that. And as a result, I think we have more like diverse thinkers and writers and people who are doing work on this subject than ever. And I think that's really reflected in just some of the incredible young feminist activists who have built huge followings on social media. I interviewed Annie Wu Henry, who is fantastic, who is a social media strategist, who was like a TikTok whisperer for John Fetterman's campaign and has built her own big following on Instagram. And Deja Fox is another person who has built a large following on social media. And these are people who both kind of spoke to the idea that in previous generations, they might not have had the resources or the access to build a big following, but with social media, they can. And I also think what a lot of younger feminists who I interviewed spoke to is this idea that 
the Dobbs decision has really galvanized, like added new urgency to the work that they're doing and are interested in finding ways to kind of like build more community in the course of doing that. Because I think they see sort of like the history that they're part of, of the blogosphere, the zines, the consciousness raising, like they see all these ways in which feminists have always found spaces to build community and think aloud. And I think they're interested in finding ways to do the same. And ladies, after talking to Emma and Mel, my perspective on the feminist media landscape isn't as dire, believe it or not. Yes, there are spaces I miss. I wish Bitch Magazine still arrived in my mailbox each quarter. But instead of seeing it as a giant void left behind, I can recognize a generational continuum and the fact that sometimes, yeah, Things have to end in order to make space for what's to come. Thank you so much to Emma Goldberg and Mel Waters. Go read Emma's reporting at the New York Times and check out Melanie's academic project, Liberating Histories. I'll link to both in the description for this episode. And also, thank you to all the feminist publications that are out there. Bust Magazine, Lux Magazine, Dame Magazine, Them.Us, Prism, The Meteor. Like, feminist publications are not dead by a long shot, and neither is Ms. It's now run as a nonprofit, and MsMagazine.com is still regularly publishing important feminist reporting. And of course I have to ask, support Unladylike. Go to patreon.com slash unladylikemedia or search unladylikemedia in the Patreon app. And for $5 a month or more, you can help keep this feminist media enterprise alive as well. And yeah, I've had to deal with my fair share of CEO gyms along the way. You can also follow Unladylike on Instagram and TikTok at unladylikemedia. Unladylike is an Unladylike media production, executive produced, written, hosted, and edited by me, Kristen Conger. Engineering is by Amita Ganatra. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week, what is the most unladylike thing about you? Oh my God, there's so many. <laughs> um, I feel like I'm a big, like, spiller. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I feel like all of my clothes, I'll be like wearing them all day and then I'll look down and be like, huh, I wonder like when that random coffee stain got on there. <laughs> At the moment, it is definitely my consumptive Victorian cough, which <laughs> makes me sound like a, a, a 90 year old man. So I'm glad that I've managed to get through this podcast without coughing. Ha <laughs> ha.